The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Reward for people coming back punctually. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I thought, uh, actually, what I'd like to do is show you a picture. And you may know this picture. If you don't know it, you ought to know it. It's really pretty remarkable. And uh, the picture was taken from the Hubble Space Telescope about 15 years ago. Uh, since this group is fairly science-heavy, given, given its physical location, uh, a number of you may know about this picture. This is the deep field shot. Essentially, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, took an image at one of the darkest pinholes in the sky. It did a long exposure across uh, or during or over many days through what is essentially a dime held at 200 feet. So you can imagine how small a dime would look held out at 200 feet. That's this pinhole that the Hubble Space Telescope gathered light from. All right? And it, it didn't know what it would find. It was gathering light from five or eight billion light years out, which means five or eight billion years ago. What would they see, right? Would they see the eye of God staring back? Or a Cheshire cat, Schrodinger's cat, you know, grinning or something like that? What would they actually see? And this is what they saw. So bear with me. Now, I don't know how well you could see the resolution there. Um, but almost all the dots of light in this image are galaxies. You can go onto the NASA website, Astronomy Picture of the Day, which is a wonderful website, and you can get this picture, or you could just go to Google, you know, images, deep field, and this will come up. So in this image, and the resolution, again, is tough to see here on this, on this wall with the sunlight and so forth, but it's, uh, there are in this picture about 200 galaxies. Uh, later on, if you want, I'll leave my laptop here at the end and you can just take a peek at it. 200 galaxies in a pinhole from the, in the sky, right? Whose light started coming toward us five or eight or more billion years ago. And then from that, uh, they've uh, extrapolated that there are altogether about 200 billion galaxies in the universe. Think about the number of galaxies, just like our own. We have sort of a medium-sized, not a very distinguished galaxy, kind of pedestrian. The nearest other galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, is about twice the size of the Milky Way. It's our big brother. Uh, it and the Milky Way will come together in about a billion years and gradually become a super galaxy. Uh, I won't be here then, but... Um, I, I would love to see the collision, although it, talk about super slow-mo, that's, you know... Ten million years is just a blink of the eye, you know, in galactic time. But anyway, I just trip out. This is the uh, desktop or wallpaper from my laptop. And, you know, if I get my knickers in a twist, arguing with my wife or some grumble with my son or something or other, I could look at this picture and go, okay, come on, put it in perspective. So, okay, great. Any uh, question or comment from those practices we did just before the break of taking in the good? And then we'll move on. Or any lessons or interesting experiences from going out during lunch uh, being like Velcro, right, for positive experiences? Yeah, right there. Um, 
I walked around the neighborhood and it felt so good to see all the vegetation, the trees growing, the flowers, the how people took care of their houses and um, there were some, you know, weed-filled yards, but overwhelmingly things looked really nice and there were just those weedy yards in between, which is another way of looking at what's out there, seeing all that's really wonderful and beautiful and not focusing on the few weedy yards. Excellent. Great, great example. How about you, please? I went to the park to eat my lunch, and I saw a woman there absolutely berating her children mercilessly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they weren't obeying her, but then she yelled louder. So what I would have done and started to do was to judge her. And I actually even had an impulse to go up and say, do you think your child raising things are working, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then I realized that the pain she was under, she didn't know how to do any differently. Probably she was raised that way. So I began to feel compassion for her, and that is a very different experience for me. Isn't that interesting? Right there, you were just primed, and you could have gone one way or the other, right? High road or low road, and that was the way. And life is made up of so many of those little moments, so many of those little moments. If you'll forgive me for opining briefly, I I just think that in any moment, we have a range of options, right? And the that range depends a lot on the situation. Uh, if we're feeling awful, you know, the best we can do sometimes is just keep our mouth shut until the storm passes for a, a few seconds or minutes or hours. Then we can sort it out. Sometimes we're at the upper end of our range. Let's say we're at the tail end of a retreat and we're just really clear and blissed out and our mind's been really, had the rotor-rooter working through it, you know, chelated, all the neurosis is chelated out and we're in good shape, right? <laughs> we're just pure. Uh, it's good. We have a different range. But at any moment, what do we do? And so as we go along the lifespan, let's say time flows this way, you know, that choice, high road or low road, high end of the range, low end of the range, moment after moment after moment, those increments, those deltas, if you will, accumulate over the lifespan and determine the course of a lifespan. They determine whether our course is like that or like that or like that. Those little moments. And I love that fact because that's, we, have, we have influence over about the next 20 seconds. Right? Yeah. My neural pathway for criticism is... Very uh, well. It's, it's, it's a, actually a gulf. Yeah. And so it's so easy for me to just... That low run. road is a super highway. I mean, I, just, <laughs> I slide down there unconsciously. So uh, fighting against that and trying to find the positive part is really work for me. Yeah. It takes deliberate attention. Yeah. 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 Thank you for saying that. Okay, you. Uh, first of all, thank you for your uh, presentation this morning. Um, when I was thinking about positive facts and positive experience, one class that comes up for me is when I receive praise. And that often goes to what's being praised, you know, is, is the ego responding? And I think the ego has been maybe um, given a bad rap or, or been underappreciated and I was wondering if you had anything to say about how do we work with the ego in this thing about taking care of ourselves and positive experience in a way that might go deeper than just the ego level, but right. not but not um, try to bypass it. Right. Great question. 
Okay. So, defining terms a little bit here. Uh, let's make... So, ego can mean different things. And let's, let's, for our purposes, and tell me if I'm not using it the way you would use it, okay? You know, in Western psychology, ego is... One way of thinking of it is that it's the self. It's I. It's me, right? Ego is the one who says, I want a cookie. Ego is also the one who says, why don't you love me more? Or why don't you have sex with me tonight? Or why don't you quit wanting sex tonight? <laughs> you know, that's ego. Okay, so far, that's the self, right? That's the I. Now, the whole consideration of self is an enormous one in both Buddhism, Western psychology, and brain science. I think the last time I was here, I did it on not-self and the brain. And uh, it's a very deep subject. For me to do this quickly, uh, I think it's very useful to distinguish between ego or I or self and person. There is, without a doubt, a person, right? You're a person distinct from me, a person. At a certain level, there is dualism. There is duality. You're there, I'm here. If I start thinking that I'm having your thoughts, that's held all time. That's psychotic. <laughs> Literally. It's terribly disturbing. It's one thing to feel tuned in to you. You know what I mean? Empathically, one, that's groovy. But to feel like I'm thinking your thoughts, you know, get the, get the white, you know, whatever. Get the guys in the white coats. So... Um, Persons are real. Persons have responsibility. They have uniqueness. They have a history. They have uh, moral rights, moral, and so forth. Okay. But what is the ego? What is the self? And the teaching of the Buddha is that um, self taken as an absolutely uh, self-arising soul that does not arise due to causes and migrates from life to life to life, the Atman in Hinduism, he said it doesn't exist. See for yourself what you think about that, but that's the te- Buddha's teachings on anatta, not atman. Okay? He also had another group of teachings that overlap with these teachings on the non-existence of the atman, um, and the fact that they overlap with and are intertwined with his teachings on the atman can be kind of confusing. But it's also quite clear that he's saying a lot about the conventional sense of I, me, and mine including to the point that he says one of the very last forms of contraction to go in the very the last forms of subtle craving and clinging that leads to suffering and the fourth and final stage of enlightenment in the Buddhist system, arahantship, is the conceit of I. That's his language, the conceit of I. So it's a very deeply uh, embedded and um, tough to eradicate uh, aspect of a, of a human mind. All right. So what is this I? His position was that if you look closely, you could not discern any such I. And that, um, or now to update it, in terms of Western psychology, uh, the fundamental attributes of the I, okay, me, mine, I want a cookie, are that it's the enduring and unified and uh, fundamentally sort of independent like it is what it is no matter what's going on, owner of experiences and agent of actions. Okay? Right? That's the, that's the notion. I want a cookie. Do you love me? You know, my bike. You know, my cupcake. Okay, like that. If you look, though, in direct experience, the sense of self is constantly varying. It's not lasting and enduring. It's not always the same. 
Second is very compounded. We have many subpersonalities, right? The self that sets the alarm clock and says, I'm going to get up early and exercise, is really different from the self who wakes up at 6 a.m. and goes, who set the darn clock, right? We have these different selves, don't we? Um, it's also not the case that the self is independent. We can see that the that selfing, that activations of representations of myself or self-related activities like possessiveness or identification, which are two fundamental activities of selfing, the Buddha really called out possession and identification, we can see that those change endlessly based on circumstances. It's also true that in neuroscience, when you scan the brain, you can't find a self there. Uh, you know, in, in, um, you, you might like the last chapter in my book because it's about this, right? Uh, relaxing the self and uh, some of the slide sets and the workshops I do are about not self in the brain, which for me is one of my favorite because it's really the deep end of the pool. But brain scans of people who are doing different self-related activities like recognizing their, their image in a group of people, picking their photograph out of a bunch of people, or pulling up a personal memory or making a difficult moral choice, right? That's what we think of as pretty much, that's me, that's I. I'm making those choices, right? The parts of the brain that get activated when people do that are all over the place. No part of the brain is self-specific. No part of the brain is special. And in fact, the parts of the brain that have self-related representations or activities, uh, even the subtle sense of subjectivity, of being the one to whom experience happens or being the one who has experiences, right? Even that sense, um, the parts of the brain in which those senses arise also do a bunch of other stuff. In other words, selfing is just one more content of mind. This is what's useful. It's not that there is no self. People say there is no self, or more exactly, um, there, it's not the case that there are not representations of self. It's not the case that there are not that there isn't a sense of self. Okay, for example, if you recall uh, what a donut is or what two plus two is, the the representation of two plus two equals four, and the neural substrate of that representation are real; they exist. We have representations of me as an I, not just me as a person, but me as I'm me. You know, the one who wants narcissistic supplies. The, the one who gets miffed when you don't respect me. The one who has embarrassment or shame, right? That I, okay? It, representations of that I arise. They're real. There is, there is selfing in that sense. But what do those representations point to? They point to the enduring, unified, independent owner of experiences and agent of actions. And that one they point to does not exist does not exist in the brain, does not exist in psychological experience. That one is like a unicorn. In other words, there are real representations of horses arising in the brain and therefore the mind, da-da, right? But what they point to is real. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think horses are real. Okay, can we, like, basic agreement here, you know? We haven't read too much Shirley MacLaine lately. Okay, horses are real, you know? Okay, good. Um, but unicorns, I'm sorry to tell you, at least right now, they're not real. Okay, maybe they're real somewhere. Bummer, I'm so sorry. Or in a different realm or a kind of thing, but basically no unicorns. It's, you know, so 
we have real representations of a mythical creature when we think about selfing. And this way of relating to it, and then observing in your direct experience. Remember the sec- third, fourth slide I showed? You know, the Buddha in the columnist. See for yourself. Ehi pasiko. If you watch closely, you really will see that selfing is very variable. And it actually often follows desire. In Buddhist psychology, there's this very useful notion of contact feeling craving. This idea of stimulus which has a hedonic tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then response to the feeling tone, all right? So we see something we like, right? So we're walking through the mall, we see a window display, good-looking sweater, right? So there's initial stimulus. Then there's the pleasant, ooh, sweater, and how I could... Then we start getting into it. Oh, sweater, it's Gap, they're on sale. I have a Gap card, 20% off. Then I could really work with them. Yeah, let's really get that sweater. I want that sweater. I'll look really good in that sweater. Oh, darn, I don't have enough money to get that sweater, even when it's on sale. Now we get a lot of craving. And what follows craving? Suffering. Suffering. That's the right answer. <laughs> right? Third noble truth. All right. Suffering. Okay. So, um, isn't it interesting? And when you watch selfing in that way, it starts losing a lot of its mojo. And it becomes increasingly seen as just another content of mind. The problem isn't that selfing arises. The problem is that we privilege it. We privilege it and identify with it rather than identifying increasingly as awareness or spaciousness or endless flux. You know, that is mysteriously and eternally, so far at least, regenerated, which is the actual truth of things. The endless vanishing beneath our feet in the elevator shaft of everything, instantly regenerated in the next moment and now, right? That's what we can abide as, right? And it's not myself there. Okay, so now the question is about taking in um, positive narcissistic supplies or praise or acknowledgement, right? You see, but I needed to set this up to get at this, especially in a Buddhist context. Um, Big discussion. As I'll talk about in a few minutes, we are deeply social animals. The causes and conditions in our nature are enormously invested in what others think of us, especially when we're really young, and especially important others. So it's healthy, as I gave the example of the rat pups, it's healthy to be prized and cherished and attuned to and appreciated and complimented by people growing up, And it's healthy to have that today, right? It's healthy to have that today. Um, The question is, what's our relationship around that? For example, if we didn't get enough of that, and I think 90% of the population didn't get enough of it in childhood. I was among them. My wife was in the 10%. These are very rough numbers, you know. I think she was in the ballpark. You just had a really benign and wonderful childhood. Um, But if you're among the whatever, I think clearly the majority, who there, for whom there were some major shortfalls, it leaves you with a hole in the heart. And we're going to get at this a little bit later. How do you fill that hole in the heart? And that's where I think taking in the good is a fantastic resource, which is what really you're getting at. The trick then is how to take in those desperately important resources today feeling seen, accurately perceived, 
cared about, tuned into, right? Respected, prized, wanted, right? Included. How do we take in those critical vitamins for our brain today in a way that doesn't create craving for them and thus sow the seed for more suffering? Right? That's the essence to me of this question, right? And in a way that doesn't build selfing. In other words, how do we feed the person without, as the, in the Buddhist word, dumping more nutrients, more fertilizer on the soil of ego, me, myself, and I? Right? How do we do that? And you see, this is a critical question, isn't it? Now, paradoxically, first, if one really does take in um, these experiences of, I'll call them social supplies, broadly defined, being loved, being liked, being attended to, being respected, and so forth. Taking them in, paradoxically, quiet selfing. Because self gets very busy around a hole in the heart. right? Because self, it's a big topic, self is a brilliant evolutionary strategy to promote survival and pass on gene copies. Because our ancestors, who had a very strong sense of self and took a lot of stuff really personally and worked really hard to accumulate supplies for themselves, guess what? They were a little more motivated probably to be successful. So selfing is a strategy. It's a means to the end. Um, So when there's pain, when there's either a strong feeling tone of pain, unpleasant, or a strong feeling tone of pleasant, that's especially where self gets very busy. And you can watch that. When things are kind of mellow, when it's a lot of neutral feeling tone, things are just kind of okay, you'll notice the eye doesn't get that busy, does it? It's when something's really wonderful or really awful that a lot of eye shows up on the whole. So if we have holes in our heart, those are generative of selfing. So it's actually good to release selfing, which is a major part of Buddhist practice, to relax selfing, to slowly release it, and definitely don't feed it so much. It really works to take in a lot of social supplies. The key is the intention. What's our intention when we take them in? Are we grasping for them? Give me one more fix. You know, shoot me up with, you know, feed my vanity, Seymour. Right? Feed me, Seymour, whatever. You know, like feed my vanity, praise me, tell me more, blah, 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 blah. Okay? Or do we, um, you know, deliberately guide them into almost, this is the fourth step of taking in the good, do we deliberately guide this here and now positive experience into a place of old lack or wound? And then if we do, and I'll talk about this later, we gradually, literally, and neurologically, there's good science on this, we will gradually infuse those old places. For one, if it's a place of lack, we'll gradually fill that hole in the heart. We'll give those layers of little kid in ourselves and just those parts of ourselves that really needed that supply, we'll give them what they need. It's like we have scurvy. We need vitamin C. You know, we don't have, we don't have rabies, whatever. We don't have strep throat. I'm just free associate. We don't have chicken pox. We don't need those things, but we do need vitamin C, whatever our hole in the heart is. So we finally get that. That's really good for us. And also, if we have pain there, usually we have wounds around this sort of stuff, gradually um, by associating to current positive experiences, we can gradually replace those old places of pain, you know, and thereby increasingly incline the mind in that wholesome direction. And that, I, for me, honestly, I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit just because it's so alive right now, but I'll come back to it. 
I started feeling, I, I, I realized this taking in the good stuff in my early 20s somehow. And when I got it, I just thought this was the greatest method. And at that point, I'd had a fair amount of psychological experience and training, um, ranging from, from Carl Rogers to Werner Erhardt and a lot of psychedelics in between, okay? And a few other things, too. Um, when I realized that, you know, I could go through life, and a handful of times every day uh, is something, particularly the vitamin that I needed, that was the antidote experience, which I'll get to it, that I could just kind of relate to it. It was real. It was happening. It was legit. You know, I wasn't phony. I wasn't Pollyanna. I wasn't rose-colored glasses, ing. That I could just kind of open to it and enjoy this positive experience and kind of really get into it, right? And that would help heal me and that would give this little guy inside me what he should have gotten all along but didn't and would also embody a kind of fundamental and wonderful stance of self-advocacy and self-compassion. Wow, (laughs) that was great. So... I would go through my days, honestly, uh, to my, some of my friends, it was, it was humorous, I'd go through my days looking for bricks to fill that hole in my heart. And I felt like it was as big as a construction site for a skyscraper, to start with, honestly. Big hole in my heart. Um, I wasn't abused as a kid. Um, many complicated things, including being very young going through school. So a lot of that led to a kind of a cascade of events, which felt like looking at, the, at other people like someone outside a restaurant, watching all the people inside, eating and having fun and chatting in this world of light. And a little Oliver Twist over here, you know, on the outside looking in. Uh, so um, there I was, right? I had a pretty big hole in my heart. But every day, a handful of times every day, brick by brick, every brick is small compared to a hole in the heart. But you do a few bricks every day, in a few weeks you feel different. A few months you feel really different. 30 years later you feel really different, you know? And um, I, because it's intention, I would get to the point uh, where, where I, because you get to realize what are the key antidotes for you. What's, what are your vitamins? What are the vitamins? What are the nutrients you really need, given your history? And so when I recognized that I was, gonna, I was getting valuing from others, um, I deliberately would sometimes really work it. So someone would say to me, well-chosen someone, Oh, yeah, I liked what you said in the meeting, or glad you're in our work group, or yeah, I read that, that was a good memo you sent out, or something, or I like you. I go, oh, what'd you like about it? (laughs) Now, once in a while, I admit it, or I really admit it, more than once in a while, it was like, feed me, Seymour. All right, it was like, one more fix, you know? But mostly, I knew I was trying to feed that soul so it wasn't so hungry, so it wasn't so dependent on external supplies. The result of gradually taking in the good is that's a major buttress for unconditional happiness because our happiness is increasingly independent of conditions. We don't need the food outside ourselves because we've gradually nourished ourselves from the inside out. So really ask yourself, you know, what vitamins do you really need? We'll we'll get more into this, uh, but this is a good emotional consideration for the material I'm about to do. You know, what do you really need? Like, for example, what was missing when you were a kid? Or what really felt wounding or absent in a, a diffi- or does feel wounding or absent in a difficult relationship? Yeah. You, you were talking about um, from our 
Yeah. Um, you talked about, about taking the bricks to fill up that yeah. hole so that we're not looking outside ourselves for that. And yet it sounds like the bricks that you're using are, are gotten from outside yourself. Great question. They, um, one class of bricks does originate from the outside. And if the particular antidote experience or the particular nutrient, you know, your brain slash mind really needs is a social supply, then there's something uniquely powerful about social supplies, which fall into different headings. Some of it is being really loved romantically. Some kinds, that wasn't an issue for me. Other kinds of social supplies are more about um, being valued or respected. That was more what I needed or included, like you have a voice, you, you're present at the table. You know, that was more what I needed. So that, it depends. That's point one. Point two, um, a major source of, of uh, resources for taking in the good come from recognizing wholesome qualities inside oneself. And I think that's a really important one because that's not dependent on external conditions. You can always see good qualities inside yourself. You know, this side of bodhisattvahood there are a lot of good qualities inside you of all kinds. You know? So that, that's, that would, that's another source. And then I think also in life, um, so yeah, that's, that's the answer. The idea is, I think a lot of Buddhist practice is, the, is given in the, the great metaphor from the Buddha, the raft. You know, we encounter the river of suffering, we want to get to the other side, so we build a raft to get across. But once we get to the other side, we don't keep carrying the raft on our head. We move on. In other words... For me, I don't go after those kind of supplies like I used to when I was younger because I knew I really needed that stuff. You know, I appreciate it when it comes, right? Because um, I'm so a little vulnerable in that area. You know, childhood matters. Childhood really does matter. Uh, but increasingly, you move beyond it. Okay, great. One more, and then I've really got to move. You want the mic? Let's I was just, just leave the mics live. I was just thinking about your metaphor of the bricks, and then you're saying, well, if we're getting it from the outside, then that, isn't that sort of self-defeating? But actually what I think you're saying is we get the bricks from the outside, but you can't build with bricks unless you supply the mortar. Okay, great. Lovely. So, I like that. I'll, I'll steal that. So Without any credit, too. I'll be shameless. That, that's where... <laughs> You're involved in doing it, but you're using the materials that you can't manufacture your own bricks. Yeah, thank you. And, and to sharpen the point a little, too, on the one hand, I think it's appropriate to be resourceful no matter what. And um, so even if, let's suppose we have a very, we have a big social hole in our heart, and for whatever reason right now, we don't have very many good social supplies coming our way. I think it's still important to be as resourceful as we can be. Bringing up memories, for example, of, any, of, of the social supplies we need, but also anything that's relational uh, will help somewhat fill that particular hole in the heart, even if it's not the exact right brick, perfectly shaped, you know, that you need. Still, if it's in the ballpark, it will basically help. So we should be resourceful on the one hand, okay? On the other hand, I think it's very interesting, and I think it's something that's probably fairly uh, prevalent in American culture more than most other cultures in the world in its emphasis on rugged individualism. 
as if somehow we can make our way in this life without relying on other people. You know, as the Buddha famously said, you know, when his cousin and attendant and closest companion, Ananda, uh, said to him, looking out at the gathering of spiritual practitioners there, you know, this is half the holy life, right? In other words, there's the half the holy life that's about things coming in from the outside, and the other half is what we do ourselves. That's what Ananda meant. It's understood when he said, this is half the holy life. And then the Buddha famously replied, not so, Ananda, not so. It's the whole of the holy life. In that, it's through good company, outside in, to some extent, it's through good company that we're able to do the practices from the inside out that are ultimately transformational. And I think it's, it's humbling and vulnerable and honest and effective to acknowledge our dependencies. Nothing independently arises. We arise dependent on other people. And accepting that and doing the first stage of personal growth, you know, being with, bearing, staying with this affront to ego. What? I am dependent? Yeah, we're dependent. We're not independent. We are dependent. And so rather than resisting that dependency, uh, let's be skillful and resourceful about it. And I say that as a charter member of the, you know, me, myself, and independent I club. Okay, a registered libertarian for a number of years. God help us. Okay, so let's move on to evolution and the evolving brain. I'm, I'm going to move through some material here that's intellectually, I think, very cool, kind of provocative. I'm going to do it fairly briskly, uh, in part to deal with the fact that it's after lunch, and then we'll take a break. If, um, you wanna, if you're falling asleep, it's okay to stand up. Uh, but I think you'll be bright and alert, because you're going to take in experiences, whatever they are, of aliveness. Okay, good. Here we go. So, evolution. Um, what a long, strange trip it's been, right? It really is, to me, um, quite something to appreciate the, the, the huge span of, of evolutionary time. So, we have um, four and a half billion years or so of Earth, three and a half billion years of life, 600 million years of creatures with a nervous system, who are complicated enough to need to enable their sensory apparatuses or apparati to connect with their, or communicate with their motor apparatuses. Then we have mammals, about six, you know, 80 million years there, primates about 60 million years. Uh, then we have our stone tool-making ancestors, two and a half, 2.7 million years ago. They made stone tools with brains a third our size, all right? And yet they were smart enough to make a stone axe. I can't make a stone axe, and I haven't met anyone who could, knows how to nap flint. I'm sure some people do, but I haven't met them yet. Evolution has continued. Now I'm going to clear my nose, so forgive me. <clears throat> it's bad enough that I'm doing it, but to do it with amplification, <laughs> that would be a dreadful thing, a dreadful, dreadful thing. Okay. So, how many of you have blue or green eyes? You are mutants. <laughs> Serious mutants. No one had blue or green eyes until about four or 5,000 years ago. Uh, some kid, boy or girl, uh, around Denmark, was, you know, had blue-green eyes and then passed on those genes. Maybe someone before that kid had blue-green eyes, but they didn't have any great-grandchildren who survived. And, as you can see, blue-green eyes are a popular thing, and, you know, they tend to lead to grandchildren. So... Um, 
although I have brown eyes. So evolution is continuing, okay? So it's the long, 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 long run. During this long run, the brain, the nervous system were crafted. Uh, This is a classic picture of the so-called triune brain. Don't take it too seriously, but we basically have an inner iguana. That's the green. And we have the inner, you know, inner squirrel, inner rat. Uh, I just love our rat-like ancestors scampering around in Jurassic Park 65, 70 million years ago, right? And the dinosaurs thought they were so uppity and hot and everything. I liken that myself to these giant multinational corporations. Meanwhile, all these little people and citizen groups running around like little rat-like ferrets, you know, will rule the earth someday. So I'm hopeful. Okay. And then, so they, and by the way, that advent with those squirrels, and which we share with... Uh, birds uh, was emotion and relationship skills, which I'll get to a little bit later. Then we have the monkey brain and especially the upper uh, and frontal portions of the blue section, uh, the human brain. The brain basically evolved from uh, from, up and out, like a tree in a sense. During that long run, the brain evolved three fundamental motivational systems. And I kind of want to highlight this slide because it has a lot of implications, including what for me are some interesting potential elaborations of the Dharma. So the first system was the avoid system. Withdraw, freeze, get off the radar, stop, uh, close in, tighten up, slam the gates, shut, okay? For example, ancient predators did not have very sophisticated sensory systems so if, the, if prey froze, the predators often couldn't see the prey. For example, you get a hungry frog and dangle a fly in front of that frog, you know, two inches away from its tongue, ready to go for a tasty lunch. The frog cannot see the fly unless it moves. Right? So we have this early initial strategy, avoid. Avoid the unpleasant, right? Respond to the feeling tone or the hedonic tone of unpleasant by avoiding pulling back, freezing, right? That's the first system. Then layered on top of that comes the approaching system in evolutionary time where, you know, crabs and then iguanas and then squirrels or rats, you know, got better and better at approaching more and more sophisticated and complicated rewards. That's the approaching system. Approach the pleasant, right? Pleasant feeling tone, pleasant hedonic tone, approach it. That's what we like. Then on top of that, with birds and mammals, came this extraordinary, wonderful invention that's very recent, which is the attaching system of bonding with us, protecting us against them. All right? That's where parental and child attachment systems developed. And then those early attachment systems between primarily mothers and children, particularly mothers and babies, were then elaborated to uh, form mate bonds between um, mothers and fathers and between fathers and children and elaborated over the last several million years in which humans evolved in hunter-gatherer bands, elaborated into uh, denser networks of affiliation and fondness and caring and altruism and cooperation and compassion for us, the tribe, the band. If you think about it, what do birds and... So birds and mammals have a bigger brain than uh, reptiles and fish do, fish do. What do birds and mammals do that reptiles and fish don't do? 
Yeah, they pair bond and they raise their young. They stick with it. You know, if you're a fish and you have a bunch of babies, you know, and eggs and stuff and they hatch, whatever, and you swim back nearby, you know, a few days or hours later, it's lunch. You eat your kids. It's not personal. They're just mobile protein systems, you know. No big. That's like, there you are, right? But that's not how birds and mammals do it. Well, to, to pair bond and raise your young, you need a bigger brain, Okay. The same thing with primates. There's a direct correlation between the size of the uh, primate brain, different depending on the species, and the degree of sociality or sociability of that species. In other words, the primate species that have the largest uh, grooming groups, okay, or the most complex social hierarchies, or seem to have the most developed uh, communication systems, or cooperate most effectively for hunting or eating or sharing resources or caring for young, they have bigger brains. Because you've got to be smarter to do that. And then came humans. Uh, I think I mentioned that the brain has tripled in size in the last two and a half million years since our hominid ancestors began making stone tools. Most of the brain volume that's been tripled has to do with relational functions. Language, cooperation, empathy, uh, social emotions like uh, embarrassment or shame uh, or love. Uh, that has uh, occupied much of the volume of the brain. This is the basis of what's called the social brain theory. In other words, it's the idea, put broadly, that the primary driver of the evolution of the brain over the last 60 million years, 80 million years, has been love, broadly defined. Not war, not hate, not using tools, not building weapons. Love. The reproductive advantages, that's the engine of biological evolution, generationally. Okay? Each time you get a generational reset, what are the reproductive advantages that are conferred by something? That's what natural selection selects for. The reproductive advantages of social skills, of love, broadly defined, have been so great that they've driven the development, uh, more than any other category of factors, of the brain that's sitting in this room today. That's pretty amazing to really think about the implications of that, you know, to appreciate it. And to appreciate that this attaching system is a very recent um, development. To put it in perspective, um, having written a book about um, moms, which includes facing the fact that many dads are deadbeats, alas, um, nonetheless, in only about 5% of all primate species do the fathers do anything for their kids. Anything, 5%. 95% of primate species, I forget the number of primate species, I think pushes 100, maybe it's more, I don't know. But um, most of them don't do anything. They conceive the child and that's it. You know, The kid's a pain, it's a nuisance. They don't do anything. They don't bring food, they don't protect it, you know, they don't preferentially protect it against others, they don't do anything. They don't have any paternal investment. So as imperfect as human paternal investment is, you know, it's worth putting it into context as a very new, a fairly new uh, invention in evolutionary time. I'm not letting guys off the hook here when I say this, uh, and I've tried to walk this talk myself. But, um, you know, to me, these are very, these have powerful implications. It's interesting when you think about the Dharma as well on this point that um, um, the, the Buddha talks about greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's really interesting, isn't it? He talks about greed for the pleasant, hatred of the unpleasant, and delusion wrapped around all that, that we are an I or that you know, things will stay the same. 
but he didn't really talk about heartache. He said very little about the kind of stuff that, that really is this major category of suffering, perhaps the dominant category of suffering for, for people today, right? Which are wounds of the heart, like not feeling loved, feeling lonely, feeling isolated, you know, living with people, maybe it's okay, but it's not great. Um, the de facto divorce rate in this country is two out of three. I mean, the legal divorce rate is 50%. 50% of all couples who marry divorce. But if you include couples who got legally married and then separated, uh, or if you include couples uh, um, of all types who formed a bond, you know, they were, they were married by any reasonable sense. They were bonded, and yet who parted ways? The actual de facto separation rate, I'll call it that, the, the separation rate is about two out of three. And of the third that last over the long haul, Right? A lot of that, the folks in that third, it's not so great. So just think about, you know, let's, we're hurt, we're wounded that way. Or where we feel we don't get enough credit or acknowledgement or recognition, right? Heartache. The Buddha didn't say much about heartache, did he? That's very interesting. I've been thinking a lot about that and thinking about writing about that and so forth. It could have been that he was so deeply embedded in a rich network of relationships, he just took it for granted, you know? It also could have been that he was such a total introvert that he was willing to abandon his wife and baby, you know, and walk away that, you know, relationships, you know? Yeah, it's the whole of the holy life, but what up? I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here, especially in this setting. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, let's ask these questions. Ehipasiko, uh, see for yourself. Or maybe... Um, I don't know. It's very interesting. But that said, paying attention to the dimension, the domain of relationships and relational wounding and relational supplies is such an important part of practice. Such an important part of practice. For one thing, the approach system, the attaching system rather, the attaching system is very regulatory of excesses of avoiding or approaching. In other words, if you're caught up, for example, in strong greed for something pleasant, a nice way to soothe that and reduce the suffering that's embedded in it and will undoubtedly follow is to um, bring to mind the felt sense of being cared about by others. On the other hand, when there's something unpleasant, right, an unpleasant feeling tone and there's a naturally aversive reaction, I don't like that, I'm afraid of that. Fear is a form of aversion, okay? afraid of that, or I'm mad at that. Um, either way, one way to calm and soothe that and kind of, you know, cool those fires is to, again, the felt sense of connection, being cared about, and, and pushing those buttons on the jukebox to call up that sense for oneself. Because in the brain, neurologically, the attaching system regulates the avoiding and um, um, approaching systems and uses the avoiding and approaching systems as means to its ends. So let's consider some of the implications of this. So I did the evolutionary history. Here's the good news. The home base of the brain, in other words, what are people like when they're not upset, they're not in pain, they're not being mistreated, they're not the victims of oppression um, or the targets of oppression? Uh, you know, they've had food, they've had water. What are people like? And they're not chemically disturbed in some way. People are pretty nice. We're pretty nice. I'm pretty nice. You're pretty nice. All right? 
Um, they're calm in terms of the avoiding system. They're contented in terms of the approaching system. They're caring in terms of the attaching system. And they're creative as an emergent property of all three, as a kind of synergy of being calm, contented, and caring. I think this truly is the home base of the human brain without resort to anything transcendental. And then my own personal worldview is that there is something mysteriously transcendental shining through. Um, But even without any resort to an X factor, right? The default of your brain and mine is good news. It's the four C's. This is the brain in its natural mode, its responsive mode. Remember I said practice was kind of twofold? It's about, you know... um, Changing the brain over time, it's also about uncovering what it was already wonderful and needs no change at all. This is the already wonderful, needs no change at all part. Yeah? Do you use a citation or anything for that? Yes, no. In other words, there's a lot of literature that shows that when people do not feel, for example, threatened, they tend that, for example, you get a predominantly parasympathetic form of activation. And the parasympathetic nervous system is actually, it's the calming, soothing, rest and digest. You know, it's, it's at the heart of this state of calm. When, when the avoid system, when the avoid, I'll get to this in a second, but when the avoid system is really activated, uh, with, then, then what happens is a lot of fighting and flight, fleeing, right? You get a lot of sympathetic arousal, hormonal cascades and so forth. The dampening of that is through activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. You're nodding like you get this. This is great. You know this. Yeah. Um, and the parasympathetic nervous system is more primary in this sense. If you, for example, cut the nerve tracks of the sympathetic nervous system, the person will not die. They'll keep living. They won't be very good in an emergency, but they'll keep living. But if you cut the nerve tracks of the parasympathetic nervous system, the person will die. They'll stop breathing and the heart will stop beating. So you can see there that parasympathetic arousal is fundamental. It's baseline. And I think the others are pretty obvious, too. Most people would report that when, again, like I said, they're not threatened, they're not in pain, they're not hungry, their bodies are not disturbed. They report, people routinely report, um, on the average, uh, that they experience mild happiness worldwide. All kinds of surveys, including people living in pretty awful circumstances, would say that when they're, when they're fed, when they're not worried about their children being assaulted or or their village being burned down, or what, God help us, something else, then they'd say, I'm, I'm kind of happy, kind of okay, pretty good, pretty good. That's what people again report worldwide. And then last, um, again, when people are not troubled and not disturbed, they tend to be quite kind to strangers. Um, there's a lovely quote, which I wish I had, I have it elsewhere, from, um, I believe it's Gandhi, who says that, you know, we hear all this story about strife and war, and certainly those, those things are real, But all around us every day are everyday examples of ordinary cooperation between people. Just letting people walk in front of you in a store or moving around them or being, you know, mildly gracious to strangers, let alone these wonderful acts of altruism for people who live on the other side of the world. So I don't, I, so for me, um, the uh, scholarly basis for each one of these assertions to me is, I think, really, really clear. And I haven't, this will probably be the book after my next book or the book after the book after my next book, because I'm really interested in this idea of natural contentment, because I think there's a lot of hokum flying around these days in the media that posits that, um, you know, the humans are naturally, uh, you know, 
upset, um, depressed, you know, selfish, and stagnant. And I just don't think that's the real truth. So that's my assertion. Ehi pasiko, see for yourself. Okay. So next, um, just looking at this, I got a... Oh, he said that too, I guess. Okay, good. He did a good thing, even though... Good, he did some other things too. But anyway, that's good. I didn't know that too. But I know there's a quote from Gandhi on this point. Thank you. Okay, responsive mode. Think of it as a triangle, right? You know, it's kind of nice to think of this as our natural state, you know, in terms of, right, approach, um, avoid and attach, uh, you know, gratitude, peace, and love. I think that's our natural condition. On the other hand... Here's the bad news. To survive, we leave home. You know, we evolved, and maybe this is more to your point, we evolved these highly reactive tendencies at the least hint of threat, pain, frustration, internal signals. By the way, most of the signals that disturb us come from the inside. Right? Most of the things that rattle us or upset us or annoy us, they originate in some internal activation. When we are triggered in this way, when there is, in the Buddha's language, this kind of contact, which then leads to the feeling that's disturbed, what do we do? We, the avoid system activates. When we feel threatened and harmed, we get frustrated or disappointed in the approach system when we can't attain important goals, and then we feel isolated or unloved, unappreciated, and so forth in the attached system when you know that system is troubled. Okay? In other words, we're easily driven from home and end up in a kind of inner homelessness, which is the nature of suffering. The first noble truth is about suffering. It's, for me, I don't know why I did it, but I've been spending a lot of time thinking about suffering the last five years or so, including why we suffer. You know, the, the I, two chapters in my book are about why the brain makes us suffer, right? How that actually happens. Because you have to understand the, the problem to figure out what to do about it. And this is where suffering lives. It's when there's some kind of disturbance in the force loop, right? There's some kind of disturbance in one or more of these three systems, which gives us this triangle in effect, you know, in which there's ignorance in the middle and it's saturated with suffering. In terms of being a therapist, if you think about it, you could organize much, if not most, of the psychiatric diagnoses in the DSM-4 are soon to be five under these different headings you know you could see extremes in each of these systems right for example extremes of anxiety or uh, rage or anger uh, or you know violence are disturbances of the avoiding system Um, you know affiliating system uh, people who are very very wounded around narcissistic supplies you would say there's a disturbance of that system So any questions or comments so far? I'll, t- I'll say this. The reason I got interested in this is this. You know, if you're an arahant, you still have a brain. Drop a brick on the foot of a Buddha, I, I know it will hurt. The Buddha complained of pain, right? He would talk about needing to lie down because his back hurt. Uh, his last days in which he probably had food poisoning of some kind or other, he described pains. You know, pains are real, all right? Also, the, a Buddha... Um, still approaches the positive post-enlightenment, right? Approaches teaching, approaches caring, approaches the pleasures of the spiritual life 
Uh, the Buddha described the third jhana uh, as a place of wonderful abiding. It's apparently spent a fair amount of time in the third jhana after his awakening. He continued to meditate after his awakening. He approached wholesome states of mind. And he avoided the unwholesome and encouraged people to avoid the unwholesome, to not engage in, um, in not indulge anger or not, um, you know, get caught up in contentiousness. He encouraged people in, in a sangha to come together like milk and water. Right? So, isn't it, so the question then becomes, you can't not have a brain. These systems are deep in the brain. They're physical. Right? They're the result of lots of careful evolutionary grinding and polishing over millions and millions of years. The question is, what's the nature of the brain of an arahant? Right? Or what's the nature of your brain when you're in a really good place? And then that creates the reverse engineering where we think, okay, what could be the conditions of the brain of an arahant? And then how do we work backwards? I think this is basically the condition of a brain of an arahant. Or... In a more everyday sense, this is the condition of our brain when we're in a good place. The avoiding system is not being triggered by feeling threatened and not caught up in fear and anger. The approaching system is at balance. It's not pursuing um, unwholesome, unhappy uh, rewards, yet is getting good, wholesome rewards. And the attached system is not getting, because it feels fed enough in the holes of its heart, it's not pursuing you know, problematic uh, aims, and it feels connected in the whole of the holy life, if you will, uh, with friends and families and loved ones. So one of the really great opportunities, of course, and I'm going to jump to this slide really quickly through some other stuff really fast. Okay. Here we go. In other words, what is the nature of the brain when it's in this state? That's our choice right here. Okay? What do we do? And the nature of, I think, a wonderful practice and a clarity about practice that comes from this analysis is whoops, to take the fruit as the path. In other words, to increasingly abide in the responsive mode or the awakened mode of each of these three systems to increasingly abide in gladness in terms of the approaching system, to increasingly abide as love in terms of the attaching system, and to increasingly abide as peace in terms of the avoiding system. Then we're doing two things at once. I don't want to use the metaphor of two birds with one stone. I don't know. Two apples, one pluck, something like that. We're both, we're both enacting an awakened state of mind when we increasingly nest ourselves in gladness, love, and peace. We're both enacting a relatively awakened state of mind in everyday life, but we're also stimulating and therefore strengthening the neural substrates of that state of mind and uh, increasingly inclining the mind and the brain in that mode of being. Okay. Questions or comments so far? And then we'll move into some practices about this. Yeah, back there. Andrea was saying that when we're mindful, underneath the mindfulness is sort of like a metta, a loving kindness. So in a way, gladness, love, peace 
a sort of, when we're aware and awake, those are naturally there. I, I think that's true. I also think, though, that if you, if you pull it down out of abstraction and you think about the things that frustrate or disappoint you, that's the approaching system, and then you think about, okay, how can I calm that system down so it feels more fed and satisfied, so there's more of a focus on fulfillment and satisfaction, not at a craving, not at a shoot me up, but at a filling ourselves up a priori, so we're already full and then less inclined to grasp out there. You know, if we look closely at that, um, I, I think what follows then for most people is they realize, okay, there's, there's some things I can do to get less caught up in frustrations and disappointments. And there are also some things I can do to take better care of my legitimate needs. And for me, that's in addition to mindfulness. We use mindfulness to help us accomplish that, and mindfulness teaches us what we need to do, but it's a more active process. And I could say much the same for each of the other two systems as well. You know, in other words, the idea is to appreciate that if these systems are triggered into that reactive mode, sorry to do this, ready? Okay? When they're triggered into that reactive mode, right? Suffering begins. I think sometimes the best we could do is the first phase of practice. We are mindful when that system is triggered in that way. But I think more than that, practice is about increasingly nudging each of these systems out of this reactive mode, which, as I'll get into some detail momentarily, evolution has really built out. You know, we're on a hair trigger. There are a lot of circuits in the brain that push us into this mode. And then you think about personal life experiences, and then you think about modern culture, which I'll get to in a minute, but it's basically business life, media, modern life tends to push us into this mode just through multitasking, just commuting, you know? And then on top of that, in ways that have been classically done for thousands of years by elites and are really done very efficiently today with mass media, we're inundated with threat messages, most of which are completely exaggerated. And that really drives these reactive modes. So to me, it's really important to take up arms inside our own head against our oppressors, which are inside our head more than anywhere else in the world. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm I'm agreeing with you. I'm kind of elaborating further. I'd like to talk, if I could, about the negativity bias, which relates to this. All right. So in our history, which goes to my point earlier, and this is the bad news, that um, this mode, this inclination towards suffering, in other words, not the suffering that is unavoidable, what the Buddha called the first start of life, okay? Uh, you know, the inherent and unavoidable physical and emotional uh, and social pains and discomforts of living as a human animal, but the suffering and harms that come from being in this reactive reactive mode. Um, You know, it's pretty, I think for me at least, it's been very helpful to realize the degree to which uh, my brain is kind of primed to go negative. So in evolution, carrots and sticks, both are really important, but sticks are more more important in terms of passing on gene copies, generally speaking. Because if you miss a carrot today, you'll probably get a chance to win tomorrow. But if you miss a stick today, if you fail to avoid a stick today, whammo, 
no more carrots forever. All right? So the brain has this negativity bias. For example, studies have shown Gottman findings in relationships that on the average it takes about five positive interactions to make up for a single negative one. In other words, a negative interaction on the average, and for the, for the average inter- interaction and the average couple, one, a negative interaction is five times more powerful than a positive one. Wow. Wow. Other findings, people will work a lot harder to avoid a loss then they'll work hard to gain the same thing. So, for example, if people, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to give you $100. I'm the experimenter. I'm going to give you $100. Uh, you got $100. Think about what you could do with $100. It's your $100. But I'm going to take it from you unless you tolerate three minutes of painful electric shock. Boy, people will put up with painful electric shock. On the other hand, I say, here's $100. Think of all the cool stuff you could buy at the Gap and elsewhere. Uh, but you've got to put up with three minutes of electric shock. Eh, I don't know. People work a lot harder to avoid loss. We don't like losing things. Uh, or um, dogs or humans can be very quickly trained into helplessness. But it takes, you know, if it, it might take half a dozen trials to train dogs in helplessness. Like they can't do anything about their fate. But dozens, maybe over a hundred trials to train dogs in any sense that they can do something to make their life better. We're very vulnerable as mammals to a sense of helplessness, which is, if you think of it, an over, which, which speaks to the ancient power, the inner iguana power of the avoid system. Because it, helplessness is adaptive, passivity, inertness, not trying, not taking risks, giving up, just kind of going along, is, you know, promotes survival under certain conditions, you know, in the wild, uh, gener- you know, um, millions of years ago. All right? So we have this negativity bias in our brain. You know, as I said earlier, it's like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Ask yourself, you know, at the end of the day, you've had 100 things happen, right? Most of them are good or neutral. What do you tend to think about before falling asleep? Yeah, the, the bad one, right? That's the negativity bias in the brain. What's a major result? Threat reactivity. This is something that has really big personal implications as well as organizational and international implications. If you think about it, there are two kinds of mistakes we can make. We can think there's a tiger in the bushes when there really is no tiger. Or we can think everything's fine. There's no tiger in the bushes when there really is one about to eat us. Two mistakes. Well, Mother Nature wants us to make the first mistake a hundred times, a thousand times, to avoid making the second mistake even once. Because that second mistake interrupts gene flow. First mistake just ruins quality of life. (laughs) I like Mother Nature. It's not her fault. It's not personal. So what are the results of this threat reactivity? We're very reactive to threat. Okay, what are the results? There are multiple kinds of results, but they basically fall into three categories. One, um, we overestimate threats, underestimate opportunities, and underestimate resources for dealing with threats and fulfilling opportunities. And then once we've made these appraisals, we have these views. Remember, view, right? Right view, wise view is the first of the eight elements in the Noble Eightfold Path. It's so important. It's so foundational. It's not an accident that it's first followed by wise intention. Um, 
the way we see things really affects how we feel about them and how we act, particularly the way we see things in the background in implicit memory. Okay? And um, so if we already think that there's some tigers there, then any information that confirms the existence of tigers or is about tigers, we're going to pay a lot of attention to. Other information we kind of ignore or set aside. So then we have this response bias that creates a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then very often, interestingly, we act accordingly. We bomb them first, and guess what? That really makes them mad. Then they come back at us and start bombing us or whatever, you know, literally or figuratively, okay? Uh, Just think about that, not so much at the level of, you know, global affairs, but interpersonal relations. We feel hurt or miffed or put down by our partner. You know, my wife used to call me on something. I'm going to do it right now. Ready, watch. One, two, three. You know, we are on the receiving end of that. Mmm, makes us mad. Made my wife mad. I, I get it. I appreciate that. So um, then what do we do? Then we kind of go back and then game on, right? Then they think, well, of course, you, I was right all along. You are an ass. Okay, and then there we go. You know, suffering begins. Wars begin that way. So that's one of the results. And this costs us in all kinds of ways. Threat reactivity, which grows directly out of the negativity bias, makes us feel bad, okay? It also triggers all kinds of stress cascades in the body that are awful in terms of long-term physical and mental health. We overinvest in dealing with paper tigers, and we shift resources. We've seen that in the last 10 years, over a trillion dollars to wars. Just, I was thinking last, or this morning, actually, when I woke up, um, what we could have spent a trillion dollars on in this country or world over the last 10 years. Because that's real money. That's real money. It was spent. It's gone. It's gone, Okay. Maybe there are results from it to some extent, but think about other ways uh, that money could have been spent too. All right? um, also, you have the boy who cried tiger, the girl who cried tiger, the human who cried tiger. Right? When we get flooded by focusing on paper tigers, we can then miss real ones, you know, like global warming or something like that. We, okay? um, also, it's interesting, as I said earlier, if we act while we feel threatened, it creates overreactions in others, then you have self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, interestingly, when this avoid system is really intensely activated with fight-or-flight um, response, it inhibits the approach system. We tend to not pursue opportunities as much. And we also, in the attach system, bond tighter to us and are more prepared to uh, be fearful and aggressive with regard to them. See the cost of threat reactivity, right? So. Yeah, we give up the approach system. In other words, if we feel flooded with threat, we're worried about threat, we'll often underinvest in starting something good. You know, we kind of give up on growing our fruit tree because we're just so overwhelmed by the Bermuda grass. That's what I mean. Yeah, or to bring it really home, in relationships, people, I've just seen this a lot, they they kind of write off their fill-in-the-blank, right? They're the person next to them at work or their partner or an in-law or something like that, you know? And they just feel threatened, and then we trigger this whole us-them distinction. When in fact, you know, I've just seen this so many times, people don't do the full-court press of trying to make it better in a relationship. You know, at the end of the full-court press, if that dog won't hunt, Move on, 
If there's no cheese down that tunnel, don't keep going down that tunnel. These are not original metaphors. <laughs> you may have heard them elsewhere. Um, yeah, but I just see most people, me included, often would not you know, really invest in approaching another person skillfully to try to make it better and kind of disengage too fast because we feel so flooded with, eh, we feel threatened by them and we're mad at them and so forth. Okay, so um, I personally think reducing threat reactivity, a really, really vital skill. And that's where the personal can become political. That's, that's one place. That's a place where the personal can become political. You know, uh, where we feel increasingly that we have right view. We're not ignorant. We're not deluded, in other words, which is the fundamental root of suffering. We see the real tigers. There are real tigers of all kinds, right? They're real tigers. But we don't overestimate them, and we don't live in paper tiger paranoia. And one of the key ways to do this, one of the key ways to um, step out of paper tiger paranoia is what I said previously, you know, this. Take the fruit as the path. Increasingly grounded in a state of gladness, love, and peace, we're not so subject to paper tiger paranoia. We're much more able to see clearly. We're much more able to mobilize resources for real tigers of all kinds, whatever they may be. All right? Much more effective and skillful in dealing with real tigers. Think how the Dalai Lama has played the, close to the world's worst possible hand since 1950, and he's played it incredibly well all right? in the face of everything that's happened since, you know, the Chinese government moved into Tibet. Right? We're much more able to deal with difficulty when our own head is clear and our own heart is open. Um, and we're not just overwhelmed by feeling threatened. Okay. So that takes us to the practical stuff, taking in the good, and we're just going to marinate in a warm bath of goodness for the rest of the day after the break. <laughs> All right? So, Okay. Well, actually, wait, before we go further, any questions or comments? This was so much and so intense. I can't believe you're this attentive. I, I mean, I believe it because I see it, but I appreciate it. Any questions or comments about this stuff? Yeah, so probably is, to find. Is this going to mend our broken heart? Ah. Do you have a solution? Well, the Buddha had some break practices for that. Sangha, one of the three jewels. There are three jewels, not two. You know, sometimes people forget about the third jewel of community. Uh, so he had a lot there as well as loving kindness practices and so forth. But yeah, I'm really going to focus on you know, the supplies that can help mend a broken heart. We won't, I won't guarantee a complete cure today, but <laughs> hopefully a lot of good methods you can use in, in your real life. Okay, thanks. Others on this? Yeah, right there? Okay. First of all, thank you very much for everything you've said so far. I was fascinated by your comment earlier uh, that how, how little the Buddha talked about love. And I'd be as well interested, as wounds of love. I'd be interested rejected. to have your perspective on the story of his life because he had a beautiful wife and child, and he had to leave his family. It was like they were a trap for him. He had to leave them to pursue enlightenment. What, right. can, you, can you say something about the, the parable of his life? Uh, as a metaphor and, and <laughs> you know what that means for us today I mean we're, we're in a different culture than, than he was in but still thank you um, I think uh, no. um, well the short version for me on that there are a lot of ways to think about those events and so for those of you who don't know uh, very briefly as best we could gather the historical Siddhartha as you well know 
was um, sort of a, you could say, a, a prince in a small mun- principality, a fe- basically a feudal system of the day. And um, he grew up, and as a young man, he married, and uh, he had a child. Either during his wife's pregnancy or soon thereafter, he just left. And the story, which may or may not be true, is that he was, had been protected from suffering uh, his life. And he had a very intense encounter with three of the four messengers, the divine messengers. He encountered uh, an old person, a diseased person, and a dead person. And they just blew him out of the water. It made him really get palpably how real suffering is. And he also encountered the fourth messenger, which is someone engaged in spiritual practice. So at that point, he left his family and he went forth. Now, to put that in context, um, he lived at a time where the clan system was very dense and rich. So the village it takes to raise a child was not like the ghost town it is today, but was actually very, very rich. He knew that his wife and child would be cared for. Um, It may or may not be relevant that his mother died soon after he was born. You know, which may or may not be relevant to this interesting lack of much. He's very penetrating when he talks about um, anger, and he's fairly. And he, he talks a lot about the issues of that and how to work with aversion and ill will. And he talks a fair amount about dealing with desire and greed and so forth. A lot, which are talks related to horny young monks. Okay, <laughs> really, you know, you had to kind of go there for a amount. He says very little about loneliness, jealousy. Uh, envy, embarrassment, shame, very little about that, uh, other than a certain amount of shame is a good thing. You know, so why is that, right? Who knows? Maybe the fact that his mother died had something to do with that. It's also the case that in that culture, going forth into homelessness was very respected, very respected, to become a renunciate, to wander, to seek enlightenment, and then, like Prometheus, bring back fire for everyone else. That was highly respected. On the other other hand, you know, he named his or his he named his son Rahula, which means fetter. Fetter, a chain, like handcuffs, chain, ball and chain, fetter. That says something too. Um, so how do we understand that? So that's those that's kind of the quick summary, right, of the facts. How do we understand that? Um, I, for me, I think a way to understand it is to look at certain themes that may or may not be relevant today, like. On the one hand, to what extent, I would have to say this, and I'm, I'm very, I have enormous respect for the historical Buddha. I mean, many people consider him, interestingly, it's interesting to read the number of people who are not Buddhist who consider the Buddha like the greatest genius who ever lived. I mean, the, the, the depth, the intelligence, the skillfulness, the large-heartedness of his teachings are just, I think they're unprecedented. They're unprecedented. Um, that said... Young man, 26, 27, 25, somewhere around there, 20 years old. Um, you know, maybe he underestimated how important he was to others, how much they needed him, and what an impact, you know, his choices would have. So that's worth asking ourselves. To what extent do we perhaps underestimate how important we are to others, how much we really do matter to them, even if they don't act like we do? That's the theme. I think there are many people, Deepama is an example of that, um, who lives as householders who are very generous in giving, 
yet who simultaneously use that life of generosity and service as uh, the fuel for practice. So I think at a certain level, um, the, the choice to pursue the long and difficult path you know, of awakening, there, it takes, where I began today, a fair amount of being on your own side, being for yourself to be sure. Your, your, your happiness and your liberation has to matter to put up with all the grief, <laughs> right? You know? On the other hand, I think what starts to happen, honestly, increasingly, is we give ourselves over to the natural state in the right-hand triangle there. We increasingly give over to that, and then we're increasingly lived by that. And then it's not so selfish. It's just living through us, and there's a gradual unnodding and unfolding that happens in our life. And you can feel it as it begins to work in you. With regard, though, to the Buddha um, in his own life, my own sense of maybe some lessons here, is on the other side of it, he made a radical commitment to his own awakening. That's also worth looking at. Maybe we, maybe he didn't need to leave home. Right? I don't think people necessarily need to leave home. I think there's a lot of practice available for householders. I think um, most of the Dharma is about practice for monastics. So I think the opportunity in the West in the 21st century, including through stuff like this neurodharma part, which is just a part of, I think, intra- adaptations, there are things to explore about serious practice for ourselves as householders. But he said to us all, don't stop at, um, you know, as he said, using the metaphor of the heartwood, right? He said, don't stop with the twigs and leaves or the outer bark or even the inner bark or even the sapwood. Don't stop. Keep going. You know, I had a kind of a breakthrough uh, in a workshop with Joseph Goldstein one time and I told him about it looking for a little good to take in. And he was kind, and he got it. It was a genuine breakthrough for me. It was around selfing and experiencing, like, literally, you you don't need a self to take the body for a walk. Um, And he said, good, good. And there's a place for that. There's a place for having your breakthroughs recognized, really, and and even praised, and, and people taking joy in your breakthroughs. I think that's another thing that's really interesting to me in Dharma communities, how rarely people talk about their practice and their growth in practice. In the human potential movement, to a fault, we talked about it all the time. You know, maybe we're all sick of it, I don't know. But in Dharma communities, it's, what, amongst, what do the monastics do? They're talking about practice all the time. And they're so stoked when each other's having a breakthrough. So there's a place for talking about practice. And there's a place for having mudita, uh, you know, for the practice of other people. Uh, great, sympathetic joy. I'm so happy you had that breakthrough. Um, where was my train of thought? <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. So Joseph says to me, you know, good, good. And I took it in because he's the real deal. And then he said, keep going. <laughs> That's great. That's what the Buddha said to all of us. Keep going. You know, the opportunity for liberation is available for, for his radical communication, especially for his time. The opportunity for liberation is equally in principle available for men, for women, for Brahmins, for untouchables, for householders, for monastics. Keep going. So I think that's another great teaching. He went. He went hardcore. And that, for me, is an inspiring example. And it's really great to ask oneself, moment to moment to moment, as we go through life, and we're at this option here, right? Do we go to the high end or the low end, right? Keep going. Keep choosing the high end. And that's how we make a, a 
you know, a, a life. And that's how we create a path with heart.